Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 43, verses 1 through 14. Uh, Please stand for the reading of God's word. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face, unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so badly as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Do you have another brother? What we told him was in in answer to these questions. Could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel his father, Send the boy with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. I will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry a present down to the man, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man, and may he send back your other brother and Benjamin. And as for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. This is the word of the Lord. We're going through the book of Genesis, and we are now on chapter 43. Amazingly enough, we already passed 43 chapters of this book. Many of us are in small groups, like our brother Eugene was mentioning, and that we are going through Genesis. And I think it's such a wonderful thing that in the small groups, we go through Genesis, and on Sundays, we are also going through Genesis. But last, or two weeks ago, we had the return. Little did you know it was a to be continued and there was a part two to the return. (laughs) But this is a continuation of chapter 42. It doesn't end, there's no break, it continues on. And on chapter 43, we have here what had kind of um, tapered off but left with a little bit of a cliffhanger on chapter 42. We start in chapter 43. And I want to remind you again, if you have an idol in your life, if you have an idol in your life, not only can you not enjoy life to its fullest, but you cannot do what's necessary for your family. Meaning you can't do what's necessary for your loved ones, those that are closest to you, you continue to end up hurting And we see this reality not only played out here in our very lives, but we see this reality played out in one of the most holy people that God has chosen and is raising. It doesn't matter who you are. Idolatry is a huge, huge thing that we are facing daily in our lives. And if we even let go or put our guards down for one second, we can see it take over and cause great harm. Interestingly enough, 
Um, the famine was severe, meaning it, it was getting worse and worse, and now it's really bad. And they had eaten everything that they brought from Egypt. And Jacob now this time, in, verse, in chapter 42, you see this parallel going. Jacob in chapter 42 goes, why are you guys just staring at each other? But now his tone is a little bit changed, is it not? And he goes, go again and buy a little food. That's it. He's, it's almost like, you know, a gentle kind of, you know, persuasion that he's trying to do. Last chapter, we talked about Reuben saying, send Benjamin with us, and if we don't bring him back, I'll kill my two sons. And uh, what a wonderful person Reuben was for doing that. Um, but here, we see that again and again, Reuben's leadership fails, falls short, and it's very, a lot of self-interest is shown, especially when trouble came upon him and the brothers. Last chapter, we saw that he's the one that immediately goes. And instead of offering solutions, he wants to say this, I told you so. I told you this would happen. And this is a temptation that we all face, is it not? When we're like, it should happen this way, but you guys aren't listening to me, are you? And especially as a leader, and I can say this is a temptation I have quite often. And it happens exactly the way you think is going to happen the wrong way. And you want to say, I told you so. But I have to be reminded the people that say it are people like Reuben, who don't do any good, who are just in it for themselves. Why would you want to say, I told you so? Isn't it so that you absolve yourself from any guilt, any responsibility? Isn't it so that you want to put yourself above the others or the ones that you're supposed to lead or serve? But you see here, there is a turn from Reuben's failed leadership into Judah's. And we see another parallel from here and chapter 37, where Reuben goes, oh, let's put him in the cistern, let's not kill him. They don't even listen to him. They're going to kill him. But when Judah speaks up, they listen to Judah and they sell him. But here, reminiscent of chapter 37, we see Judah now standing up and saying, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you, if you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Judah stands up, and he is firm. He is um, not only concise, but he is very clear in his speech. And this is when Jacob, the father, Israel, responds. He goes, why do you treat me so badly? Why do you treat me so badly? And tell, why did you tell him about the brother? Why did you tell him about Benjamin? More and more I see that when you have an idol in your life, or when we have idols in our lives, we become very partisan. Uh, I got to go to an, a really special event uh, yesterday, and I got to see uh, some premiere of a movie. I think it was something like Bill Nye the Science Guy, and um, I think that's the name of the movie. I, it might, I might be wrong, but it's about Bill Nye the Science Guy, um, and it's about global warming. I got to see it, and I really, really enjoyed it. Um, not because I agreed with everything, of course, but it was just re really entertaining. 
And then in one of the questions of that post-premiere of the movie, in one of the questions, uh, there was a TV celebrity of The Tonight Show, Stephen Colbert came out and he interviewed Bill Nye. And in one of the questions, Bill Nye answered, well, we are living in an increasingly partisan world. And I think everybody agrees, everybody agrees, we are becoming more and more partisan. If I were to say and give you a name, I'm just gonna pick a random name, a random first, random last name. I'm just gonna say the first name Donald, last name Trump, just a random name. And if I said the word or the name Donald Trump, people have a feeling immediately. And it's, I would say almost never, yeah. It's either I hate him or I love him. The world is becoming more and more partisan. And he mentioned the world is becoming so partisan, how do we get people on your side? And he, he attempted to his best ability to answer the question or to answer the best he could to say how we can be less partisan while he himself is very partisan, meaning he shows an incredible favor to one side. We believe that we are on the right side. No one is partisan because they think they're wrong. We believe we are on the right side. We are absolutely on the correct side, not right. Some, some of us are correct on the left side. That's what we believe. And so we believe we are absolutely correct in the side that we are. And so for us to be less partisan, apparently, is to get people on our side, which is an oxymoron. It doesn't make any sense. It's a contradiction. To get people less partisan, to bring them to your side, it just means you're gonna get more people on your partisan side. And the question remains, how are we going to be less partisan? How are we going to be more in dialogue, conversing with each other, showing compromise, working out things, instead of saying it's about you being on this side, it's about you being on this side? I can mention any political issue that we have, and all of us, we have been, if I may, to a degree indoctrinated to feel a certain way about certain issues. There are emotions that come up in any political issue. And isn't it because perhaps we have made something else increasingly an idol in our lives? Something else, an idol means something else will come to give me completion, wholeness, salvation. It will solve the problems of the world. And when it doesn't, what happens? Our world starts shattering. We become more and more disenfranchised, bitter, angry, and ultimately what Jacob is facing is hopelessness. Why'd you have to mention your brother to him? We might not feel that way because maybe we don't have a youngest son out of 12. We lost the 11th, that's our favorite. Maybe not. But we can relate to him in the sense that we put our hopes in something. We look at something and it gives us a little bit more of peace. Or so we think. Or so we believe. And this is when Judah responds. He goes to Israel, his father, in verse 8. He goes, send the boy with me. And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. 
I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would now have returned twice. We've seen Judah's kind of growth over the Genesis and last few chapters. But this, what he says, is bordering on brilliance. And when we talk to people, I think there's a lot to learn from Judah's speech. We think that if we want to be less partisan, it's to be more partisan. And I'm saying that is an oxymoron. It just doesn't make any sense. And Judah does not do that. You see, we have on one side Joseph, who is technically the highest person in Egypt. And then on the other side, we have Jacob, technically the highest in Canaan. And both are at odds with each other. Both want Benjamin. And Judah and his brothers are in the middle. They are going to starve and die unless something gives. Judah says this to him, and we ought not to miss the detail that he puts in. There is care in his words, and how he mentions it is actually pretty brilliant. When he talks in verse 8 about not li- that we could live and not die, he goes, both we and you and also our little ones. So he puts it in a way where he gives ascending order. So we, as he mentions at first, we're the lowest. Our brothers, we're the lowest. But you, you're higher than us. You're higher than us. So we put you first. But even above you, I want you to consider our children, our little ones. He puts them at the top. And as he puts it in ascending order, you see how he put this speech together and how masterful he is with his words as he is talking to a father that is seemingly not going to ever, ever be convinced. I wasn't gonna, well, I was going to not mention this, but perhaps I will. In that Bill Nye uh, movie, there's no spoiler, there's like no plot, so there's nothing to really spoil, but just more informational. There's this one part where he is debating a young earth creationist named uh, Kevin Ham. So Reverend Ham is a young earth creationist debater, while Bill Nye is, of course, a secular evolutionist or biologist in that, in that kind of sense. He believes in you know, evolution and all of what it, it entails. And so we have two people on both sides, and at one point, they ask both, uh, what would ever change your mind? There was a CNN host that would ask them, what would ever change your mind? And when Reverend Ham was asked this, he said, well, nothing in short of the word of God changing and the word of God doesn't change. And then Bill Nye, they go to Bill Nye, he goes, well, just present me with evidence and it changes. And I, I was actually very sad as I watched it. Because we, put, we pit these two people saying that there are only two sides, meaning you could only be, if you're a Christian, you could only be this uh, young earth creationist, or if you're on the other side of, I believe in, they put it now, that it's like a slogan, I believe in science, 
then you could only be part of this area. And I, I believe that not everybody's like that. In fact, most people aren't on either side. There is some things that they believe in, some things that they don't, some things that they want to continue to consider, and some things they believe to be true that happen on both sides. And so it was really interesting. But when I read over Jacob again, he was like that. There's nothing that can change my mind. What could possibly change this man's mind? But Judah again says this. He goes in verse 9, I will be a pledge. I am going to put my life on the line. When Judah puts his life on the line, he's not only putting his children's life, he is putting himself, his children, his wives, his um, livestock, property, more importantly, his inheritance. He's putting everything that he has on the line by saying, I put my life and I pledge my life to this. Judah puts everything down. In poker, we say all in, in that sense. Judah puts everything on the line. And then he ends it with this. He goes, if we didn't delay, we could have done this twice, Dad. And boom, that finisher, that finishing move was excellent. No one saw that uppercut coming. But man, hit him right in that jaw and he was knocked out. So Israel says, all right, fine. And finally, Jacob realizes something. And you see even a change in Jacob's demeanor. And he goes, and he starts imparting wisdom. You know, when you go and you need to change someone's mind, or you see a harsh boss, you have someone that has control over your life or is highly influential over your life, what do you do? You don't just talk bad about that person. You don't just go, this boss sucks. I hate him to your coworkers. Guess what? You're a bad worker then. No one's going to like you either. But Jacob is showing wisdom here. Take some of our finest stuff, things that they don't have in Egypt that they will love. He starts talking about gifts. Bring to him our appreciation. Go above and beyond to show him honor and respect. He doesn't know that it's his son Joseph. He just knows that their lives are going to be affected greatly. Life and death is on the line. So he starts sharing wisdom. And now he does something he never did before. And he finally goes in verse 14. May God Almighty, may El Shaddai grant you mercy before the man. And may he send back your brother and Benjamin. He's still not perfect. He doesn't even call Simeon by his name. He says your brother, right? And Benjamin. Um, but it's the first time he actually sends him off with a prayer. He asks for God's protection over them. Anytime there is a big life event change that's happening to you, this is what I would suggest and I would advise. Have someone that has control over you or your life, great influence. It could be your father or your mother or you're a small group leader, your pastor, have them pray for you. One of the things I will never forget is when I had huge life-changing events happen to me, my father would make an effort out of his busy schedule before he would go out the door. He would call me down and he would pray a prayer over me. I would never forget those moments because they were incredibly, incredibly influential to me in my life. 
And perhaps you had parents that did that, perhaps you didn't. But that's not the point. The point is you should receive that now and you should give that now. There are people that you also influence, whether you know it or not. Jacob gives them this blessing and he finally comes to this resolution, conclusion, if I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. And so he says that, and then they go off. And then we go into verse 16, past what our elder read, as Joseph saw Benjamin and the steward of the house, and he goes, you know what? I want you to slaughter an animal. I want you to prepare a meal when he saw Benjamin. Mind you, he didn't see him in at least 13 plus years. So Benjamin is probably in and the earliest estimates, like the youngest estimates is Benjamin's 22, something like that, what many of you are. And some of you consider yourselves really old if you're 22. But now I kind of see what Joseph is saying. I see in a lot of our college students, some of uh, them are back. Um, hope you're back on a good note, not because you failed. Okay, but now that you're back and I've seen you grow, I kind of see that. Like, you guys are still pretty cute, even if you're 22. I won't say it to your face. I'll just say it once here. But that's what Joseph starts to feel. And he goes, slaughter the animal. We're going to have a great dinner here. But the guys, the brothers, didn't take it well. And they're like, this is weird. Why is this high man, this very, very strong person, bringing us into his house. They don't know why. So they go, probably, is to kill us or to take us hostage, to seize us, to take all that we have, to take our, basically, our inheritance, to take our favor, all the good things that we have. It's very reminiscent, the fear that they are feeling, not because Joseph wanted it, but because they are feeling it, because maybe they have no idea, is very reminiscent also, again, of when Joseph was put in the cistern. He had fear. Why is this happening? And they are feeling the very similar fear. And then when their fear is alleviated is when the steward greets them. And the steward also seemingly a God-fearing man says, I have received your payment. You don't owe us anything. So they kind of start letting their guards down. Joseph comes down and comes to the home, and they see the brothers, and they bow down prostrate to Joseph. Another, another fulfillment of the dream in, verse, in chapter 37. And he asks about his father. Is your father well? You know, when someone asks you how your parents are doing, because we're very Korean, I realize a lot of Korean culture or Asian culture whether it be East Asian Chinese or Taiwanese or Japanese, whatever it is, and any kind of Asian culture is very similar to the Middle Eastern culture. Perhaps it's also because Abraham was from East Asia and traveled to the Middle East, perhaps. One of, one of my favorite restaurants that I like going to is a Jewish uh, deli. And I, I eat their beef stock soup, and I'm thinking this is exactly like Korean karbitang except it has carrots, weird, but it tastes so good, right? Um, and so it's so similar. So when someone asks you in our culture, in this church, let's say someone comes to you and says, 
How are your parents doing? Are they well? They're basically asking you about the well-being of your family. But of course, we as second-generation people that are not as familiar with the culture, the tradition, we might just answer, he's pretty healthy, I mean, he eats a lot, so my dad's cool. And that, that's the way we answer. <laughs> but they're asking more than that. In the same way, Joseph is asking, is your father well? But there's another meaning behind it, because he wants to know how his father is doing too. Your father's well-being is connected to my well-being. And when someone in the Eastern Asian tradition asks you, how is your father doing, that is something like very similar. They're asking you because your father's well-being is connected to a certain degree to my well-being. So if you tell them my father or mother is not doing well, they feel sadness. They share some of that pain. And this is one of the things that you see happen here. Joseph, even though he's Egyptian, or they think he's Egyptian, is showing a little bit about his culture, showing a little bit of his own tradition to his brothers. There's some hints that he gives out here. And then he lifts up his eyes and he sees Benjamin. And then he immediately goes, God be gracious to you, my son. He can't help it. He just blesses him. And my son is a term of incredible endearment from someone older to someone younger. And he goes, God, be gracious to you, my son. And he starts crying. So before he, he shows it, he runs back in and he washes his face. Before that, um, we see that there was a chamber there. And a lot of people might think and see this and be like, is Joseph a little soft? <laughs> because he cried. Let me assure you, just because you cry in public doesn't make you soft. In fact... It might make you strong. Just look at Joseph's example. I don't know why people are laughing. Some of us are very confused. And rightly so. You should be confused. Um, it doesn't mean you're soft. It does mean, however, that you are probably strong. Okay. Um, it does mean, however, this has been pent up. That even though he said, my son's name will be Manasseh, Ephraim, or Ephraim. I forgot, God has given me a new life. There's something inside of you that hold, that's in there, that's in there for a long time. Families hold something really deep in our hearts and our souls for a long time, whether you know it, whether you want to believe it, whether you want to admit to it or not. And it's there even for Joseph. And then after he washes his face, he controls himself, and he goes serve the food. As we to go towards the end of this chapter, we see that he is served by himself, the Egyptians on another table, and the brothers on another table. And it's because of some racism, sure, and they had to live in that time that way. But something incredible happens. Um, they are seated, the brothers are seated in birth order. Remember, Simeon is brought out to them. Reuben is, of course, there. So you see Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, blah, 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 all the way down to Benjamin. And as they're seated, they're just like, how is this possible? This is crazy. It's another hint. Something is a little off, but something is very, very intriguing. 
And as they sit, they're just amazed, and everybody's getting their portions of food. And then you look at Benjamin's table, and it's five times more. Five times more than a normal person's food isn't just something what anybody can eat. In spite of what some of you men might be proud or boastful of that I can eat whatever was given Benjamin. I don't think so. I've seen some of you eat. You guys eat like birds. But uh, Benjamin had five times the portion of a normal person, meaning everybody could eat and have their full times five. That's a lot. And so they put it on the table, and Benjamin's is just overflowing. If there's like maybe a salad here, you know, you got your main entree here, you have your second entree here, your fourth course here, and then you have your pre-dessert here, and your dessert here. The Egyptians ate well, I'm just telling you, the Egyptians ate well, and there's five times. There's probably no plates that could fit it. So it's just overflowing. You have to wonder why that happened. And then portions were taken uh, to them five times, and then in the last, last, Sentence that says they drank and were merry with him, meaning they drank and a lot of them were drunk. So they were just, now their guards are completely down. If their guards were up before in the beginning of this chapter, they're very on high alert. When they went to the house, they thought they might die, very high alert. The steward kind of breaks it down a little. Joseph comes down and greets them, talks tenderly to them. It's broken little. There's food given to them. They're seated in this order. And you see this kind of thing happening. And then in the final, finally, you see Benjamin has a lot of food, but we have enough to eat and drink. And they do that very, as the Bible says, merrily. And they were drunk. And you see all these things happening. Now you got to start thinking. Now that I placed this in front of you, you might be thinking, what is going on? It seems as though something is about to happen. Well, that's next week. Um, but <laughs> something is happening. And next week, we're going to chapter 44, and some of your Bibles, or many of your Bibles says, Joseph tests his brothers. And I was telling Pastor Esther this, I was like, Joseph tests his brother is not a true, true kind of statement, because guess what? From the very beginning, when Joseph saw his brothers, that's when the test started. That's when the test started. Let's be honest here. He was testing them from the very, very beginning. He was testing them even now to bring Benjamin. He knew that they would have to bring Benjamin because he knew that that famine would be severe. He knew that all these things were happening. So he was testing them. I wanted to share this with you. Life is a test. Perhaps someone that has influence over you They do certain things. And if you're a student, it's very obvious because a professor will test you, sure. But not everyone says, I'm going to test you now. But life is a test. When we say something and that person you know has influence over you, that's also a test. I believe that once I have moved from Fairlawn, which is five minutes from here, and I moved all the way to Garnerville, New York last month, which is a little far further, um, my commute extended about 500%. And even the five-minute commute that I enjoyed, when someone would drive slow, 
I got just a little bit, I'm going to be honest, just very little bit, very little bit mm, uncomfortable. That's what I'm going to say, <laughs> uncomfortable. I was very little bit uncomfortable. And I would just wonder why this person is just going the same speed as the person on the right lane. So they're both going, and there's only two lanes on Century Road. Why can't you just go on the right lane? And I can easily pass you, obviously, still under the speed limit, right? And so... That, this five minutes, I've realized as my commute has extends and it grows, uh, my patience and my uncomfortableness, my patience drops and my uncomfortableness also grows. Um, now I see myself driving like three digits. Three digits meaning, of course, 64.9 miles per hour. <laughs> and I, I see myself driving faster and faster because I get more. No, I, I don't. 64.9, seriously. Um, but I see myself driving faster, getting less and less uh, patient with other people around me. Um, I don't understand why certain people do certain things on the road. I consider myself a pretty decent driver. Some of you have been in my cars. And I remember commuting here when I was a youth pastor. I commuted from Elmhurst or Flushing, Queens, and I would commute here. And that's when I learned how to drift because I just couldn't wait. So I would just drift in the corners and exits uh, and just because just I couldn't wait. But my driving skills increased. Um, but I would see myself getting more and more frustrated. And I can tell some of us know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of us maybe have lived close by. And you wonder, how can anybody drive fast on the highway. Just go speed limit. What are you going to save? Two minutes if you go a little bit faster? Yes, you save two minutes, by the way, and two minutes is important. But uh, yes, two minutes is not a big deal. And then I want you to try living an hour or two away. See what happens to your two, three minutes. It's like, oh man, three minutes, I could catch the last two minutes of the game or something to that effect. But then a test happens. The test is the speed trap. And every once in a while, you will see someone, a law enforcement agent, put their, uh, put their vehicle in like a U-turn lane or something like that, and you know they're shooting you with the radar gun, right? And you drive and you slow down. I was even coming to church today, and I was on the right lane. Uh, I knew what I had to preach on, so I said, I got to drive slow. So I was on the right lane going not 64.9, but maybe 64.3, something a little bit slower. And I saw this person on the right lane slow down considerably. From, I, I think he was going much faster. And then he slowed down considerably because he saw a police officer waiting on the side of the road. But he didn't only slow down to speed limit. He slowed down way past me to make it look like 55, 50 miles per hour. And the speed limit is 65, by the way. And so I just zipped by him on the right lane. Uh, I wasn't really afraid of him pulling me over for going 64.9. I have family members who are officers. And so I would just say, you know my cousin? Yeah, okay. But... Um, so I see that these speed traps are like almost tests for drivers because once you're caught, or once, once, once he passed the police officer, he never sped up again. There was another police officer for my whole ride down from the Garden State Parkway, but I saw him just getting smaller and smaller in the rearview mirror. He just slowed down to 50 and never sped up again. That test really got to him. But 
Life is a test. This is only five, ten. Some of us, our commutes, I think, are longer. I think the most I've seen is maybe an hour and a half. Some of you are traveling long ways to get here, an hour and a half, up to two hours to get to this church, and I commend you for it, for doing it every week. But life is a test. But our life isn't five minutes. It's not in a car for five minutes. It's not even in a car for 30 minutes or an hour or even two. It's like a hundred years in your car driving. And there's tests and it's rough and you get frustrated. There are people that you're sharing the road with that you just simply don't understand why they are on the road and why they are blocking you. Why are you doing this to me? (laughs) Why are you doing this to me? Just as Jacob said, why do you bring trouble on me, O front driver? A lot of people think, oh, I'm doing the nice thing. I'm not a bad driver. I don't drive fast, Pastor Eugene. I completely don't relate. I know what kind of person you are. You're an excellent driver, I bet. And I bet you are. I bet you're the driver that sees someone in the Jersey roads that needs to make a left and you slam on your brakes and you let them make that left, right? But little do you know, when you slam on your brakes, there are 50 cars behind you that also have to slam on their brakes. But you like that because as they make the left, they give you the hand gesture and you're like, I give my, I feel good. I feel good that I got the hand gesture, so slam on that brake. I gotta say, I appreciate people like you a lot, especially when you are in front of me. But little do we know that every little thing that we do on the road, the point is, it affects people. It affects people. Whether we realize it, and many times we don't. We don't realize it. We think sometimes we're doing something good, and we end up hurting people. Hasn't that happened to you before? And life is a test like that. But you know why the test is necessary? Because character is developed and revealed by tests. That's why all of life is a test. You are being constantly tested. God constantly watches your responses, not only on the road, but to people, to problems, to success, to conflict, to illness, to disappointment, and yes, even the weather. He watches the simplest actions when you open the door for others or you pick up a piece of trash in the hallway when you're walking down to the bathroom or when you're polite toward a waiter or waitress. We are tested in how we manage our finances, how we manage our relationships, and how we manage our talents. A lot of people think it's just about Our talents, right? Jesus is talking about the talents. Talent was a word for money in the New Testament, not actual giftings. So Jesus is talking about all the things that we have been given and we are responsible for. So why are we tested? Why are we being tested like this? Why are there speed traps? James Packer writes this in his book, Your Father Loves You. Grace is God drawing sinners closer and closer to him. How does God in grace prosecute this purpose, not by shielding us from assault by the work, the flesh, and the devil, nor by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstance, not by shielding us from troubles created by our own temperament and psychology, 
but rather by exposing us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to him more closely. A.J. Gordon was the, was the person that noted that if you tear down a sparrow's nest, the bird will come and build a nest in the same place again. But if you continue to tear down the nest, the bird will finally build a nest, but this time higher than it was, so it's less vulnerable. A lot of us were satisfied with where our nests are, not realizing the imminent danger that's ahead of us. And sometimes the test comes in the form of a torn down nest. Never do, never realizing that in our defeats, the Lord is directing us to put our security in him. Samuel Rutherford once wrote, if God had told me some time ago that he was about to make me as happy as I could be in the world and then told me that he should begin by crippling me in the arm or limb and removing me from all my usual sources of enjoyment, I should have thought it very, a very strange mode of accomplishing his purpose. And yet how is his wisdom manifest even in this? For if you should see a man shut up in a closed room idolizing a set of lamps and rejoicing in their light, and you wished to make him truly happy, you would begin by blowing out all his lamps and then throwing the shutter wide open to let in the light of heaven. A testing will come. And it's not because God hates you. It's not because he disapproves of you. On the contrary, the testing comes because he loves you. Yes, my drives are a little bit longer. The tests may seem heavier, but we have to know that God is the one that is going to be with us. If I'm to be honest, I failed. I failed many tests. I failed so many tests that if I were to try to count, I couldn't count, I couldn't remember. But most importantly, I failed the biggest test of all. And the biggest test is to submit my will to the Lord. And we failed that test. We failed that test to submit ourselves to the Lord, saying that I know better than my Creator. We failed that test when we say, I want you to do this for me, God, but definitely don't put me in through it this way. We fail that test when we say, I don't need you in this part of my life. I can handle it without you. And you see, as that test eroded Jacob, it erodes us. And we are left with a hopelessness and a despair. But there is good news. The good news is that we can't pass the test, yes, but someone else has. We failed the test, but someone else came in our stead. He became the first and foremost driver on the road, and he passed that test. He lived that perfect life. 
And he died the death we should have died. He should have gotten the pun. He got the punishment we should have gotten. If we were in front of a judge, not just for the speed trap, but for every single, single sin that we committed, then you know what we would be sentenced to. It's more than a life in imprisonment. It's years and years and years and years. It's eternity of imprisonment and death. But Jesus took on that punishment for us. We will do our best to pass the tests going forward. But that is only because Jesus has passed the ultimate test for us. That's why we could get up again every week, every Sunday, come here and be refreshed being reminded of his resurrection power in our lives. As hopeless as the world may want you to think you should be, we have a hope that resides in something other than the worldly powers, the politicians, all the work that you think that we are doing. Our hope resides in the power of the saving one of Jesus Christ. I want to leave you with this poem as I end. It's a little childish poem, but I figure it is Children's Sunday. Lord, I've never moved a mountain, and I guess I never will. All the faith that I could muster wouldn't move a small anthill. Yet I'll tell you, Lord, I'm grateful for the joy of knowing thee and for all the mountain moving down through life you've done for me. When I needed some help, you lifted me from the depths of great despair. And when burdens, pain, and sorrow have been more than I can bear, you have always been my courage to restore life's troubled sea and to move these little mountains that have looked so big to me. Many times when I've had problems and when bills I've had to pay and the worries and the heartaches just kept mounting every day, Lord, I don't know how you did it. Can't explain the where's or why's. All I know, I've seen these mountains turn to blessings in disguise. No, I've never moved a mountain, for my faith is far too small. Yet I thank you, Lord of heaven, you have always heard my call. And as long as there are mountains in my life, I'll have no fear. For the mountain moving Jesus is my strength and always near. Let's pray.